0: I believe that becoming a better man means being more reliable and more supportive in relationships. Whether that be with friends, family or partners, human connection is important for all of us. So I've designed a test that'll help you improve yourself and your relationships. There's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. For now, enjoy listening.
1: I do feel that if my family had let me know and I'd have known that I could have actually helped, I could have really helped because I kind of had the conversation with him.
0: Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. Today we're talking about loss, fatherhood, and using tragedy to spur us on. When Tom was a baby, his biological father Tony left the family. So Tom was raised in Wigan by his mum and her new partner Sean, the man who Tom calls his dad. But when Tom was 14, Tony came back into his life, and the pair of them struck up a meaningful relationship. It was more a friendship than a father-son dynamic. They would go to football matches and gigs together. But all that came to an end when Tom was 20 and just starting his third year at Lancaster University.
1: We were sat down in the living room playing Pro Evo or Fifa. I'd had a couple of drinks and we were kind of getting tuned into the night beginning. My phone was next to me on the couch and my, it started lighting up. My mum ringing me. My mum only rings me when she really needs me. I knew it was serious straight away. And I answered it and she had the same tone of voice as when I'd been found out as a kid for doing something wrong. And she said to me, hey, Tom Love, um, I'm sorry but I've got some bad news. She said, Tony, he's, uh, he's been found dead. And that was the first sentence out of my mouth. I was confused basically, I didn't really know. It's impossible to take that kind of news and really get it sunk into your mind when the sentence is said. I feel like I'm in a movie. None of this feels real. I couldn't fully engage in it. A numbness and a little bit of shock, but mainly numb. My mum just said, riggy grandma. I went straight from that conversation with my mum. I spoke to my grandma but at this point I'd walked into the back alley behind where the house was. It was nighttime in Lancaster in winter and uh, I was just in the cold and the rain outside after the phone call. And my grandma just kept saying, sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And it was later that I found out that he'd taken his own life. He was living on his own, he was in his flat. And kind of unbeknownst to me, he developed some you know, alcohol and drug issues. Hearing my grandma upset was always difficult for me. I was devastated at that moment, devastated. Not just because, you know, He'd passed because I knew she was upset and she was distraught and it was affecting her. That was one of the worst moments of my life in terms of how I felt because I couldn't help, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't say anything. She'd just been dealt with awful news which is her son had died. She was a person I cared about deeply. I didn't know what to do with myself and I was about to go on a night out and I went and had some drinks with my friends and then I stopped. I started to get upset. My girlfriend at the time was like, if you need, I think you should go home. And she started getting upset and I went home. And then I just felt this like a, I had to go back to Wigan. I had to go back to Wigan.
0: I think because of the environments that we've been brought up in, yourself in Wigan and myself in Atherton is men don't cry. Men don't show vulnerability is it just you just didn't know how to show your emotions? So it was just kind of just layers of an onion and your vulnerability is right in the center of that. What, what was it for you? On some level, I didn't have emotions and they developed later. The other layers, is I didn't know how to express the
1: emotions that I did have. And then I also felt it best to just get on with things and not really tell anybody about anything. And a part of me felt like I shouldn't express them because I have this dynamic where I have my dad and I have my mum and I had a great upbringing and a fantastic life. Very, very happy. I have this other factor, which is the story about my my, my biological father and him leaving my mum, et cetera. But I was too young to ever remember any of that. And I've just grown up in, a, in an exceptionally happy environment. And then this thing's happened, which on the surface sounds awful to someone on the outside, but I'm like, yeah, but I've got a mum and dad and I've got a stable background. So, should I be feeling anything at all? So that was kind of the the layers that were going through my mind. And the crazy thing is, I was at university. That was the first week of third year. When I went into third year, I was sitting on a two-one. I finished my third year with a first. That's how unaffected I felt at the time. I finished that. I then went travelling South America with mates at uni. I didn't even remember talking about this once during that during those you know four or five months. I then came back. Started my career at Barclays on the graduate scheme and then after six months they sent me to live in Hong Kong. And it was when I was living on my own, in Hong Kong, in a one bedroom flat, all on the other side of the world, that I started to to experience emotions and I didn't know what they were and I didn't know where they were from. But now I now I realise it was that was me beginning to grieve. I was away from everybody, I was away from any expectation, I was away from having to hide what I was feeling because I was I was on my own most of that time. Being in a box of my own emotions for eight months in Hong Kong is how I, how I experienced. And when I came back, I knew I wasn't I wasn't fully the same in a good way, because I processed it, but I realized what everyone meant to me and that it was okay to feel these things for him and that part of my life and my family. And they do not take away from my dad. They're, they're two separate things. They're both compatible. It's okay to have felt that for him. And it's okay to know that my dad is my dad and I see him as my dad, not, not anything else. There were moments in that period where I'd be on a night out and I'd walk home on my own and I'd have a, like a moment there of like feeling towards this situation, but I was, it was late. I'd had something to drink and occasionally I would ring hit my biological father's mobile number. Just, you know, I, that obviously knew I wasn't, function, knew it wasn't functioning anymore, but I'd ring it. Um, when I was walking home alone kind of thing. So, so I, I knew something was bubbling under the surface and Sometimes it takes me to sit with myself to figure out how I'm feeling about something. And still to this day, even though I now, I think I've become better at being emotionally in tune and emotionally in tune with myself and a little bit with others I'm by no means anywhere near good or perfect. But even now when something happens, I need to really figure out how I feel about it. And that's, I think that's my natural reaction is numbness in the moment or even, even prolonged periods after.
0: Do you feel a sense of, I have to lock that away and I'm not allowed to show my, my emotions. So now I'm, you know,
1: a 34 year old aging wrinkly man.
0: Like I feel
1: much more comfortable sharing my emotions now. Sometimes I don't have them genuinely now. And now I know that is a genuine part of me. Sometimes I, I experience them, but not the extremes or, or, you know, my girlfriend will, will say that I'm like, I'm always, I, I'm always like seven, eight out of 10, you know, on the spectrum kind of thing. I'm never probably 10 out of 10. I'm very rarely like a two or a three. I'm always like on an even keel. So I, I, I feel comfortable expressing my emotions. Like, for example, when my, when my biological father's mum died, my grandma, I was exceptionally close to her, you know, since from, from day dot, you know what I mean? They, they, and uh, my biological, my biological um, uh, father's uh, dad as well, exceptionally close to them. It was some of the greatest people you could ever meet. And when, and when they died, especially my grandma, I was, I was crying straight away, crying at the funeral. Um, I was, there was no hiding for me what I felt for that woman. You know what I mean? And I was, I was older, but I was like 27, 28, probably at the time. Um, and, uh, she meant everything to me, everything to me. And, uh, but I think by then I was comfortable expressing myself properly. I think, and I was more in tune with what actually affected me or not. So now I think. Not that much affects me emotionally now. It's mainly family related stuff, like my close family. Um, but now I'm more comfortable expressing it when it does happen, I think. Um, and it's probably because
0: I went through that, that period where I, where I I couldn't and then it burst kind of open. What was the turning point for you to actually start unleashing the emotions that you had instead of blocking them away and then not speaking about it for a long time?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't ever remember being this, in this one moment, but that period of time and I think is that period of time and then there was soul searching after that period of time. And then I got into things like, at the time I did probably four years of meditation, you know, after Hong Kong, um, that I was having a hard time sleeping and I put that down to not being able to process what I was actually feeling and thinking. And I think speaking to certain friends trying to do mindfulness practices for that period of time, helped me really think about, and for me meditation, I don't really do it as much anymore because I I I don't feel the same calling to it. It's not that I don't do anything that's meditative. I just don't do it in a formal setting like that. But I think it allowed me more time to be with myself and my own emotions. And when I was doing that for 20 minutes, the same things would come to me, the same things would come to me. And I think it just allowed my own mind to kind of just slowly piece things together and think, ah, this is fine, and you can, like, you're not a bad person for feeling these things for so that person. It doesn't mean these things towards that person either. And these things can all exist kind of together. And and now it just helped me, I think, piece it together. Like, like sleep helps you solve problems in a way. I felt like the meditation for those periods of time just helped my mind relax and understand what I was thinking and what I was going through. So I think Hong Kong, at the time I spent there, opened the door for me to be able to then go and do that and piece things together.
0: I listened to an interview with Gary Neville. When his father died, he would catch himself ringing his dad and then realizing, oh, what am I doing? And it was a similar kind of thing with you that your your biological father, Tony, is in your subconscious.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because we used to share, like, we'd share a lot of moments in our life with each other. There was never a father-son dynamic. And that's what made it harder. Like, imagine one of your best mates just, killing themselves but there's other, there's other there's these other like layers to it you know it's a complicated you know friend that you've got because of the family situation he was a big part of my life and you know in whatever way you want to you want to frame it and so then he was gone when I was in those moments when I was on my own it was a natural inclination to try and to try and speak and connect and I still felt at that time if only I'd known if only I'd known that was on my all those years that was on my mind I think if only I'd said something if I'd have known and and I think that, that played into it, you know, in trying to, trying to contact him in some way, even though I knew I obviously couldn't contact him. And uh, I still feel to this day, not in a looking back and regrets kind of way, but I do feel that if my family had let me know and I'd have known that I could have actually helped, I could have really helped because I kind of had the conversation with him.
0: We'll get back to the episode in a second. Before that, I just want to say, if you think this episode would be useful to a friend, send it along. You never know; it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show.
1: And it, it was such that he probably didn't talk to anybody about about what was going on. Maybe his maybe his best mate, who I am who still really really closely connected with, he was the guy that found him and that told my grandparents. Um, but uh, but maybe but maybe not ultimately. Um, and my family were trying to protect me from knowing the truth. Um, and I understand why they did that, because I was only 20. But at 20, I felt like a fully grown man. I don't know how you felt when you were 20, even though necessarily, even though I know now I wasn't. But at 20, I thought I could handle anything. And uh, if, if only they told me I could have had a chat with him, it would have been all right, was my perspective at the time.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your grandma, because what is it about grandsons and their grandmas and the relationship there? My grandma was one of these like old school
1: women in, in the sense that she was loving, she was caring, she was, she was, the, she was like an angel to me. Um, but she was hard as nails. I was doing a reading at the funeral, and I was like, I'm fine, you know, me, whatever. And I, and I saw my grandma for the first ever time cry. I didn't get upset because of what was going on. I got upset because my grandma was upset, and that was probably the, the most, other than her funeral, it was the most time I've cried any other time in my life of seeing her cry. That was like a, sh- like a shot in the heart for me. I've never, I've never experienced any emotion like that.
0: You said before the fact that your biological father died and then immediately your scores went from two, one to first, so clearly you worked a lot harder and then you've been on this relentless sort of path of excellence, I suppose, in what you've done in the finance sector and then creating your own successful company. What made you go from a two, one to a first? Was it seemingly that you tried harder or you worked harder? I think the work ethic predates anything that, you know, anything that happened to me
1: when I was 20 and it comes from my mum and dad that brought me up. But my mum was very, very disciplined with me when I was a kid. Um, Growing up in in Wigan or, you know, places like it, there's a chance you end up in trouble with the people that you're friends with and, you know, messing around after school. So my mum never left that to chance. I was at a sporting club, whether it was rugby or football, every single night and every day of the weekend. Before I'd have my tea at night, she'd make me sit on the kitchen counter and recite my times tables flawlessly all the way up to my nines. If I messed up, I'd start again. So I just became this like, she just created this like work rate monster. And I've always been a workhorse basically is how I'm, you know, a glorified workhorse who's learned to love learning. And I think in a way after what happened when I, when I was 20, that was a way of just taking my mind off everything was to just the work. I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna learn, I'm gonna get the best possible score I can. That's always remained as a part of me. That experience did shape that because I threw myself in stuff even more. When I was in Hong Kong, for example, to medicate what was going on, I go to the gym twice a day, seven days a week. I think at one point that was to take my mind off stuff, but it's also who I am. I just dove into who I am.
0: Fascinating. You've got men who deal with certain things in their life, big moments, family, friends, whatever. And you've got this, I'll go down the masculine route. I'll go down the more feminine route. And in this situation, you went down the masculine route of, I'm going to be even more relentless. This has added fuel to my fire. But to actually take that more considered feminine route, which I don't think it should be considered feminine, but it is in in society of, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to let out my emotions. I'm going to tell people how I'm feeling. Why do we not go down that route? Why did you not go down that route?
1: Yeah. I suppose I never even thought it was an option for me. Not like a, it wasn't like I assessed the two routes and felt like, oh, society doesn't want me to go down that route. It would prefer me to go down this route. I just did what I felt was innate within me. It was like, what I'm doing what I'm doing and I don't even really care why. I channel my emotions or my emotional response into things that are, that are productive, they're healthy, There's a sport, there's a business. I could have easily gone drunk a lot but that wasn't who I was. I could have easily gone and turned to drugs, but that's never been me. I turned obsessively to something else. It just so happens that that something else was constructive and useful.
0: Mm. When I've had difficult situations in my life, when I've gone down the masculine route, I feel like it's hurt me. It's been to my detriment. So I had mm. some kind of pain in my life in 22, 23 years old. I didn't speak to my mum for about nine months. And I did the Hong Kong marathon and, You can do a marathon or you can do an Ironman. And if your why is built on something positive or something whole about yourself, but mine was just about pain. Mine was about fighting that pain and it was very unhealthy to do that. And actually it just didn't, it wasn't good for me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think I did that. I don't think I did the half Ironman or the Ironman for any wholesome reason either. I think I did it for an element of status, if I'm honest, and an element of proving to myself I can do it. And it was an awful period of my life. What was good was the day I, I did the Ironman and when I finished it. And I was proud of how I performed on that day.
0: And I was proud ultimately of the time that I got. Mm. But I never want to do it again. At any points in that training, did you have the picture of your biological father in your head? Do you think that kind of fueled the the fire in some way?
1: I think maybe, maybe a little bit, but not in a major way. I think he would have been proud. He would have been proud that I did that. There isn't one person in my family who drives me more than the others. They're all there in my head, my grandparents and my, you know, my parents and my biological father.
0: Mm. The last thread that we're gonna talk about today is the biggest killer of men under 50 is suicide. When you think back to the time with your biological father, Tony, you said before that you felt that you could have had that conversation with him. Does that still come into your head now? And, and how have you, have you learned to deal with that? Is it an element of acceptance? Because this is a, a massive issue in society and, and a lot of people who do take their lives, they don't tell anybody.
1: Yeah, they don't tell anybody. It, it, it still annoys me and it still frustrates me less than it did You know, because of time. But I felt mature at 20 You know, I, and I felt like I could have had that conversation because I understand him. I do understand him deeply. Even, even though I only really knew him for a short period of time, I felt like I have a really good understanding of him. And I felt like as a consequence, I could have at least had a conversation with him. And, th- and that maybe it would have never changed anything ultimately, but it would have taken that away from, from what if, you know what I mean? So I feel like I, if I have children, which I, which I want to do, I will treat them like like adults. Um, and uh, well, I'm not going to tell them everything about every single little thing. But this was a, this is a big thing that was going on that I felt I deserved to know. But maybe he didn't want me to know. I don't know that. Maybe he was the one driving you know, the silence on it. And if that's the case, then there's nothing I could have done.
0: The alcohol for a lot of people is like a numbing agent. Did you ever find out what, that, what he was using the alcohol for? I think it, I think it was a numbing agent.
1: And, and what he was numbing, really, was, was what had happened to him in, in, in his life after he'd left me, basically. Um, so what, what, what had happened was he'd obviously gone, um, he'd left my mum for, for uh, another woman they then settled down and, and, and got married and had a kid. And then that woman had left him, uh, later on and he'd, and it, and he'd left Wigan and gone live away, And in his mind, he'd sacrificed his whole life in, in Wigan for this new marriage. And then that had gone away from him and he was left with nothing basically. And so he wasn't left in a family kind of unit. And that was what affected him. Um, and so, it's understa- in a way it's understandable how that would affect someone emotionally. So it sounded like he would lost his purpose. He would lost his purpose, and I think he felt like he'd risked everything for this new thing, and the new thing hadn't worked out, and now he was left with neither. You know, so and he probably came probably an element of him came back to Wigan and saw me with my family and with a dad and happy that made him realise that he'd missed that bit. You know, and he was never going to be that. You know, for me, I don't know that for sure, but I mean, it's, mm. it's natural that he probably would
0: have felt like that in some way seems like you had a really strong connection and still do with your father, Sean. The reason why I've never really talked about this you know, publicly or
1: you know, before is because I'm protective of my dad's feelings because he's honestly the greatest man I've ever met. And I'm very fortunate that I've met him and he's also my dad. And I mean that at the bottom of my heart. He's the greatest thing that ever happened to me, me and my mum. And especially at that moment in time where it was just us two. And so if it's one part of this conversation that gets me emotional, it's talking about him because he means so much to me. He stepped in when all that happened. He was helping organise the funeral of my biological dad. He helped sort his estate out. He helped sort out all sorts of things. Like it's just the selflessness of him, the humour. He's the first person I ring if I have good news, if I have a problem, and that's just testament to the man. He's a, he's an absolute colossal man.
0: What what have you taken? What have you taken from your father, Sean? I think
1: he he's the kind of guy that if I rang him now and said I need you to come and Come and do this for me. He'd just drop whatever he was doing. He'd be there in a second. Now he's retired as well. I've become so much closer to him because we we spend more time together. We share the same humor, and I think we share a lot of outlook on life and, and outlook on the world. And my, I think calmness comes from him, and I think he is the he is also like the ultimate family person, and I think that comes from him too. Um, and he was the one when I told my parents about going starting a business. He was supportive and during the hard times that we've experienced with the business which you do when you start a business he's been the one who's like you know nothing ventured nothing game like you, you you carry on you can you know you can do it kind of thing
0: what's the last thing today is what's the pinned tweet that you've got on your twitter page <laughs> my, my
1: pin tweet on my twitter i'm going to read it exactly word for word so you can uh, so you can see it but it's from my dad it made me laugh as soon as i read it he said uh, i said i go every now and again my dad asked me How's your little venture going, lad? Uh, like I'm selling homemade lemonade on the streets of people who walk by,
0: and uh, yeah, that's what he, he does do that. I love that because there's a beautiful innocence to it, isn't there?
1: Yeah, yeah. He, there, there, there is like.
0: I mean, he's not an innocent,
1: guy at all, <laughs> but there is there there is like a there is a there is a purity to him. Um, there is a purity to my dad. He's just so honest and so good to my mum and to me and my sister. Um, and to all his friends and everyone around him that he's uh when he walks into a room you know everyone's happier really is and uh and he's the most well-meaning guy you've you've ever met there's never an ulterior motive there's never and if i can be, you know half of that i'll have done all right i think
0: it's undeniable that there's a unique bond between father and son Our fathers can take a lot of credit for teaching us how to be a man in today's age. Tom's stepfather, Sean, has really done that for him. I've had a fairly similar situation to Tom where I've got two fathers. My stepfather has been with me since I was pretty much born and my biological father, I see every two to three years, who was more like a friend. I really respect the way that Tom was able to hold and honor both relationships in his life and that when his biological father, Tony, came into his life, he didn't substitute his stepfather, Sean, for him. For me personally, with my own biological father, I felt like because I only saw him every two to three years, it was like the shiny object syndrome or the novelty factor of being able to play football with him, do things with him, but really the day in, day out fatherly duties were done by my stepfather. The relationships in our life don't always appear how we're conditioned to think they should. Father figures are not always as they look on TV. There's room in our lives for all sorts of different male role models. After knowing Tom for a few years now, I've always respected his work ethic. He's an incredibly goal-driven guy. And I've wondered what was the motivator for him, what really drove him to be who he is. And I only knew just as we were about to record this podcast that this had happened to his biological father. This then immediately made me think that he was driven and motivated because of the death of his biological father. As Tom did, and like a lot of men do, when loved ones in our lives die, we push and grind in our work even more so. Is this really the healthiest thing that we could be doing? Or could we just give ourselves some time and space to breathe and just to be instead of do, and not just throw ourselves into work and distractions so that we can really feel those feelings and grieve for our loved ones properly? And I love this quote from a woman called Marissa Peer, And she says, feel the feeling until it can no longer be felt. Before you go, I need to tell you about our man test. Because as men, we can struggle to forge strong relationships, often by being bad communicators. I've definitely been there. This podcast is about helping you better understand who you are as a man to become the best version of yourself. And the team and I have designed a simple quiz for you to discover more about your identity as a modern man. It takes less than three minutes to complete, and it's going to help you establish better relationships and form stronger connections. Whether that's with your partner, friends, or co-workers, the man quiz is going to help you become more trustworthy, reliable, and dependable in all your relationships. Find the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.